with their latest financial results. Google Cloud is approaching a $30 billion business and ranks Google as the third largest of the leading cloud providers or hyperscalers. This creates a massive opportunity for partners to help Google's customers take full advantage of their cloud environments by providing the additional services, platforms, and expertise only partners can provide. And if you're a technology leader looking to learn how to effectively grow your business, then you're not going to want to miss this exclusive Ultimate Guide to Partnering series, Precision Partnering, where I'm joined by the Google leaders driving the partnership business to help define what it takes to effectively partner with Google. This is the Ultimate Guide to Partnering, the top partnership podcast. In this podcast, Vince Minzione, a proven partner sales executive, shares his mission to help leaders like you achieve your greatest results through successful partnering. And now your host, Vince Minzione. Welcome to, or welcome back to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering. I'm Vince Menzion, your host. And today, I welcome Clive D'Souza, is the head of partner engineering for Google Cloud North America. And he joins this special series of the podcast, Precision Partnering, a masterclass partnering with Google Cloud. Clive and I have a thought-provoking and insightful conversation on how his team applies deep technical expertise and partner engineering to enable and support partners that are taking customers on their transformational journey. We also discuss what attributes he sees as key to working with his organization and the unique path from humble roots to computer science that he took. You'll also learn how he's applying Google Cloud's precision partnering methodology to create a win-win-win for partners like you, and how you and your organization can best engage to drive mutually successful outcomes, partnering with Google. I hope you enjoy and learn from this insightful and thought-provoking discussion as much as I enjoyed welcoming Clive D'Souza. This episode of the podcast is exclusively sponsored by Google Cloud. Google Cloud's mission is to accelerate every organization's ability to digitally transform its business more than any other top cloud provider. Google Cloud has unique capabilities to meet the needs of customers across four areas, data, trust, open infrastructure, and collaboration, all underpinned by sustainable technology. Learn more at cloud.google.com. Clive, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Vince. I'm looking forward to a chat today. I am so excited to welcome you here on Ultimate Guide to Partnering. You're the head of partner engineering at Google Cloud North America. So for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit more about your role, partner engineering at Google Cloud North America, and your organization and its mission? Absolutely. Let me start with the mission, and, and then we'll walk our way down in terms of what my team's charter and roles and responsibilities are. Purely from a mission perspective, partner engineering focuses on the technical enabling and delivery excellence for the entire partner ecosystem to drive customer excellence and the best customer outcomes. We start and end with the customer. People always talk about working backwards. We have a 360 view of the customer, and that also includes the partner ecosystem. So that's our mission. That's the ethos we live by. 
as it relates to how our team is spread and, and structured. So I have the entire spectrum of partners. This includes large global systems integrators, the big guys like the Accentures, the Deloitte's, the TCS and HCLs of the world. We have the resellers of the world. You can think of the Sadars, the quantifiers and 60 degrees and CDWs. And then you have the ISV ecosystem. These are the ones which deploy third-party applications either directly on Google as a SaaS offering, and then they bring customers along with, or they go and transact through a Google marketplace and then deploy into the customer's environment. And then I have a fourth pillar, which essentially goes very deep. These are the subject matter experts. You can think of them as level four, 500 architects who specialize, and they are very intent-based architects who can help connect anything from a third-party ISV offering to something which is a primitive inside Google's cloud services or work with a customer or a partner to solve a very gnarly migration problem, right? It could be something like doing a migration of our mainframe to that effect. So my team straddles essentially at a high level all the, the entire partner ecosystem to deep inside the Google infrastructure space. I find that fascinating because you're going across very different work streams, I would say, right? From a GSI perspective to a reseller to an ISV that's built a product offering, and then this deep architecture component. How do you organize that team for success? It all starts with what we are trying to accomplish with the customers. And our founding ethos is when customers move their workloads either to the cloud through migration, or for that matter, they are doing a cloud-native deployment. It's a function of what skill sets are needed. Like in the case of my team, we have expertise all the way from Gen AI. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. And something as germane as setting up what the right storage architecture would be for you from a disaster recovery, from a latency, and how you do a spread across geos. So the long-winded answer is that the short-winded is what is the specific customer workload we're trying to go after to help. And that's how we go and position our engineers to work with that. That being said, we are well aware that the entire ecosystem enabling as it relates to moving the workload to the cloud is partner-led ecosystem. You know, we are fairly and squarely a 100% partner-led entity and organization. We believe in partner first. So most of my organization, the principal engineers, the partner engineers are actually attached to specific partners and you work with them to enable their teams, to enable their work streams, to enable their workshops to drive the ad deployment models with the customers and customers for Google. So that's how we're spread out. So pretty much the entire spectrum is covered that. I think what I hear here too, which is, you know, I, I think this is a great point, is that you organize by partner, but then you also think customer. And Jim talks about this one plus one equals one, which is we come together to solve for the customer. And that may require several partners, right? But you're thinking about the customer first in the equation. And then you're also helping these organizations to skill up. Because uh, I know that th it is a hybrid cloud world or a multi-cloud world. And organizations maybe come at it from different angles, right? Is that a true statement? That is a, actually, you stated this beautifully. That's a 100% accurate statement. And there are multiple facets into that. When you bring a partner in to a workload migration, and to your point, that workload has got a very specific skill set need. What you need for an infrastructure migration is very different than an app modernization, or for that matter, very different than what you need for something for enabling security or a security posture. And then the AI is a different beast altogether. Oftentimes, especially in the case of really large customers, and in some cases, even the mid-market customers, they will have more than one partner involved, depending upon the specialty. But what does not change for the partner 
and for the end customer is the underlying platform, which is Google Cloud. So when my team gets involved, we look at holistically across the entire spectrum. We look at, are they following the best practices? Are they, do they have the access to all those artifacts they need? Have we set up the right governance model around? And do we have the right set of technologies being used, not just by one partner, but all across partners for the right outcome for the customer, right? That's where we, we start. That's where we end. And then the thing which we always, always mention in our team and we keep it front and center, it's not just the technology which matters to us. It's what happens when the partners move on and the customers have to manage that, the entire environment, right? That skill up has to happen. And the customers have to be self-sustaining and they have to get to a point that they start growing. So that's how we look at it. So basically, we look at it from a very long point of view. And we always ensure that the customers are kept whole, not just by the experience, but also from the fact that when they're running their artifact, their workloads in the cloud, it runs absolutely like clockwork, like an engine, which is very well oiled. It strikes me because of my own experiences and knowledge of Google and working with organizations that are Google partners, that Google is highly differentiated from an engineering perspective. And a lot of the work that you do is transformative for these organizations. And I think about almost like a fine-tuned race car, as opposed to maybe a Ford Maverick or some other vehicle, and that the work that needs to get done is a little bit more specialized and may require a little bit more, especially these organizations that are newer, that are trying to get on board and become successful partners working with you in the organization, they need these additional skills and capabilities coming from your team. And that's a great analogy. One of the things, and I've been in the hyperscaler business, I would say, over a decade now. I've been in the industry 25 years. And every platform has got its nuances. But in the grand scheme of things, the way you put it, it's very eloquent. The entire cloud ecosystem is moving. And it's maturing. The processes are maturing. And as we look at the partner ecosystem today and we look at the customers, the entry point for the customers today has significantly moved. When they're moving a specific workload to the cloud, 15, 20 years ago, and it was still the Gen 1 cloud. And I would argue there's a significant amount of workload sitting in a legacy cloud, more than one, right? I mean, that the cloud is moving so fast. So to your point, when you bring in multiple partners, you bring in multiple technologies together, it has to be clockwork. You don't want a knocking in your engine, to, to use the analogy. And you want to make sure that you have the right distributor set up for the timing of the cylinders to fire. And especially, and you know, extending that analogy of multiple partners and you're running a migration. As an example, when we lead migrations and we enable customers, we go through something called RAMP. We just announced it actually recently. It's a rapid migration program. It's a world-class program. And it's not just technologies, right? Just like a race car, it's not just about the engine. It's also the expertise, the foreman, the crew, the pit crew, and how you're putting the entire system together. It's the wheels, it's the chassis and everything. And the same construct, we extend that when you look at RAMP. You have stakeholder alignment. You want to ensure that the best policies for cloud governance, which we have learned over many cycles with deep scars in our back, we bring it in. And we believe that every migration, and truly from a Google Cloud perspective, you know, constantly iterates. And the other thing which I always remind people, when you look at the very large distributed deployment of Google today, we were in the cloud way before the cloud really was a thing. Let's be transparent about it, right? And you, you go to any part of the world, your Google.com or Gmail or Google Docs used to work even before it became cloud. So now we're bringing that expertise, which is very secure, very well managed, highly distributed, 
highly resilient to this space. So that is where you know, we differentiate and that is the same ethos and that's the level of expertise and that's the level of thinking we bring in when we talk about distributed systems in the race car analogy. That's such a great analogy. As we're working with these organizations and our listeners come from this ecosystem world, right? Some of them grew up in the Microsoft world, some of them in AWS, others from other disciplines and platforms. What do you look for in partners and from, from their lens? Why should partners choose or decide to work with Google Cloud? That's a two-part question. So sure, there are other clouds. You may totally acknowledge that. We embrace competition and it is good for the entire ecosystem. As it relates to what we do specifically for partners, and as Jim mentioned in his uh, podcast earlier, in addition to the standard market development funds, very specific funding and expertise, which is given to partners, our ethos as a company is we are a partner-first organization. What that means for us is not just doing stuff with partners in terms of all the go-to-market activities. It's also in a very thoughtful and deliberate manner. Like for me, it's my team is small. It's a few hundreds at most. We are never going to go and compete with the partners in the ecosystem. While we have a professional services organization, that's a very hard firewall. We don't have any data transferring one way or the other. So that's how we work with the partners from an ecosystem perspective. As to what makes a good partner and how we envision them. Our definition of a good partner is anyone who leans in with us, doing the right thing for the customers on Google Technologies. It's a wide spectrum. We have an extremely high-touch, white-glove engineering team, which goes in very deep with partners and brings them up very rapidly up to a skill set through immersion days, through boot camps and actual live workshops, where we can take them to the entire journey at no cost to the partner and get them to a point they can very rapidly start moving workloads. In fact, it's not uncommon for us to take a partner through an entire journey over a matter of weeks, right? Three to four weeks, and they start the first migrations. That's how rapidly we bring it. And it's a no-holds-barred, it's an open dialogue, and we do it in such a manner that every single artifact we create is based on open standards, and we open source it. So we do not believe in holding it tight to a chest, right? So we actually constantly are pushing it out and growing the ecosystem. I love what you have to say here, because I do think you're providing a tremendous amount of enablement, training, support along the way. And the fact that Thomas Curian has put that stake in the ground and said, we want every opportunity, every customer to be working with partners is just, it means that you're not competing. You're working side by side with these organizations. If I may, for a thing, channel conflict matters a lot for us, right? And we've seen it. We have lived it. I've been a part of the whole experience. And when it comes to that, we are very sensitive. And to Thomas's point and, and to Jim's point, we take that very seriously here. So we will work through the ecosystem. We will scale through the ecosystem. We will even grow with the ecosystem. That's just our founding principle. I love what you have to say here. And this is the ultimate guide to partnering. And this series is precision partnering. So Clive, what do you look for? What do you believe to be true for successful partnering? For a successful partner, you know, it, it goes back to what we always say. The customer has to be the 360 for us. It's not just getting a partner who can have the best quiver of technology arrows in them. It's also about the end customer quality outputs we care for. Things like the delivery readiness index, things like the partner delivery quality, things like the partner excellence framework. These are things we keep a very close watch on. As an example, it's not about a partner having the best trained Google engineers, the best trained 
infrastructure security, networking, storage specialist. It's also about ensuring that specific workload was delivered in a timely manner, in the most secure manner. And now when you put in Gen AI, the highest standard of ethics for the customer. So it's for us, that's where it begins and ends, right? So we look at partners as part of that entire machinery. It's a card. And as long as the partners can commit to that, and we can, we will work with them to your point earlier about enabling them and getting them in the expertise. That's what we look for partners, right? And we do not really differentiate or distinguish as a small partner or RSI versus a GSI or MSP to have different standards. This is what it's expected from everyone. Every one of them has got a point as a a CSAT score, if you will, which the customers give to us. And we watch that very actively, right? So it's, it's not just one data point I wish I could tell you, or if you look for an ideal partner, it's multiple data points. And these are constantly viewed and graded. And then we work with the partner to fill the gaps we are seeing. We learn from the partner where we have to go and harden our systems. At the end of the day, the customer satisfaction is what drives us. It strikes me, Jim talked about one of the challenges being year two, right? It's easy to go in and do that first workload or maybe transact the workload. And what I'm hearing from your discussion here is this is transformative work. It is not a one and done. And your organization is helping the partner nurture the customer and bring them along on the journey. Is that a good analogy? It is. And, and in the best proverbial is we just don't go fish for them. We teach them. And a lot of the partners, without taking any names, because I'm sure I'll say a few and I'll forget more, essentially goes down to working with the customers, creating a cloud center of excellence. And that is just not technology. It's also the governance models behind it. It's also how you're going to actually go and get the next generation of technologies with a cloud-first, cloud-centric, digital-native construct and drive that digital transformation in a continuum. Because when you look at migrations, these are not in point in time, as you mentioned earlier. It's not about just moving one workload from the on-prem or a shared or a hybrid data center to the cloud and everybody goes home. Unfortunately, that's just the starting pistol fire going off for a long race. What tends to happen is those workloads have to then get optimized. You have to right-size them. Oftentimes, you have to peel away apps which you no longer use them or not. They're not built suited for the cloud and you have to replace them and refactor them. So these are things more often than not, once a customer gets their expertise in the cloud and they get their DevOps savvy and they understand the constructs of here is how I do my microservices, here is how I do how a distributed architecture looks like, it's an ongoing journey, right? So it's a relationship which we'll maintain through partners or directly with customers. But that will be something which will be an ongoing journey. It's not a one and done. It never is. No, and as you're describing this to me, it reminds me of almost think about renovating a house, right? It's You, you don't just do one room and, and then you're done. It's an ongoing journey, right? You talk about old applications, legacy applications. As customers see the fruit of the transformation, they look at more areas of focus and how they can continue to transform. I think that's a great analogy. I only thing in that analogy, we are a good contractor, right? <laughs> we will deliver on time. We will not do cost overruns. None of that, right? The partners are the contractor. Yeah. And, uh, we are the oversight. You're Home Depot. You're providing all the tools and uh, platforms and capabilities to get there. Right. So we, we, we make, we create enough conditions and we create enough 
opportunities for the partners to deliver on time and the highest quality and all of that. It's a good way to look at it. And again, this kind of goes back to the early analogy, right? Every time there is a migration, there are certain steps which have to be followed irrespective of how large or how small or how early in the game you are. You have to establish a landing zone. You have to establish a security posture. You have to establish a governance and uh, enforcement mechanisms. That being said, we also know that with every new workload, net new workload, you have different dependency mappings. You have other applications which you need to move to the cloud. And I always keep reminding people that people do not migrate infrastructure. They migrate apps. And once those applications start moving, you get the dependencies, you get the mapping, and you understand what can and should be moved to the cloud and what needs to be left behind. Each of these workloads, to your analogy earlier, could be looked as a room. We call them waves in migration, wave one, wave two, wave three. And there is a very stubborn mechanism we put together so that this whole wave one, wave two, wave three comes together. The analogy is wave one has to talk to wave two. Maybe in the housing example, would be like your plumbing better be right. Your electricity better be right because room one has to still functioning on the room two. So on and so forth. The foundation cannot be mismatched and all of that, right? So yes, it is a contracting mechanism, but we also view literally within the scope of a cloud that you should learn from the mistakes you're making in room one and not repeat them in room two. And room one should have the learnings of all the experience of your last 25 homes. So we need to get that straight to the customer through the partner, right? Either to my team or the partner has done enough of these at Google or for that matter in cloud. And they get the value, intrinsic value delivered to the customer. That's how we view it, right? None of these should be net new activity. Let's figure it out. That's not, I would not put a bunch of high school kids to build a home. Let me put it that way. Yes, exactly. Great analogy there. Clive, this has been an interesting six months, right? This whole AI, generative AI conversation has erupted, I think is probably the best term, right? Unless chat GPT, open AI and the like. Google has been leading the forefront of AI since the very early days of search. How is Google Cloud approaching this AI arms race? The reason I'm pausing on this one, so when we look at AI, when we look at Gen AI in general, we are taking that job, that whole new movement, extremely seriously. So our response is no different than how Thomas and Sundar have super articulated well. It is it's very controlled, it's very deliberate, and it's very methodical. As much as we believe in the value of Gen AI, we are also well aware of the downside of misusing the technology. And one of the reasons Google is taking the approach we are, where we are coming to market, there shouldn't be a surprise here, but we are coming to market in a very well thought out manner. And then the thing which I always remind customers and partners when we have these conversations, that Google, to your point earlier, has been at the forefront of all things AI. We released Transformer in 2017. We have over 3,000 scholars working full-time, and we have over 7,000 articles, which all trace back to the advancements we have made in the concept of an AI and ML. So our approach is going to be very well thought out. Our partners are getting trained as we speak to deploy solutions, not just for Google, but also with customers. But we are taking the step even one further. Every use case has to go through an ethics committee. We work with them, we set the standards, and we scale this to the partners to set that baseline expectation that this is what we're expecting. So our approach is grounded on the reality that what we're introducing to the market is very profound, but we will snap back 
to our company, Google's ethos, right? We take the responsibility of managing and sorting and maintaining the security of the data, global data, very seriously. And Gen AI is going to be no different. We just acknowledge that the potential for negative use of technology is extremely high. And that's why we are putting the guardrails around it. This is not about speed and getting fast. This is about going further. That's where we are looking at the technology. Yeah, it strikes me. You know, we start thinking about ethical AI, right? There's so much good that can happen, but there's also so much bad that can happen. And just being an ethical organization with your approach is what strikes me here. It is. And when double-clicking on a large language model, we the world started looking at pattern recognition using regression. Then this had some sort of a neural networks coming in where they could look at essentially gobs of data, not as unstructured as what large language models can, and they could come up with a pattern. Now with large language models, you can look at tens and hundreds of petabytes of data, completely unstructured, and you can create patterns. So the value it brings in, the good value, things like you in the medical field, you have access to unbelievable amounts of data. As a physician, you can get the time to the value, which could be a diagnostics, or it could be getting the next generation of drugs, or it can be the next procedure very fast, good use of technology. If you are in a research lab and you have access to the world's library and you want to get to a specific thesis or a write-up, you want to do a bunch of papers, good use of technology. If you are on the commercial side of the house and you want to go and have a great customer experience in a customer support call, right? You have a real-time chat bot getting the the questions coming in from a user, which they no longer have to be a query. They can be something that type into the chat box and that translates into something which the chat bot can understand as something, when is the next sale for kids' clothes on something? And you get a very rapid answer good user technology. We want to have that experience. We want to drive those experiences. And that's where we are enabling the technology. There are many examples of the bad side of the technology. I don't want to go there. You know, I always, I'm a firm believer, you find what you go looking for. And I'm going to focus on the positive, right? So that's where our head is. And we want to do this in a way, and we firmly believe it can be done. Is there a risk? Yes, it can be done. But that's what we are focusing, using Gen AI for the good. I love this. Such a thoughtful conversation. It reminded me of a conversation I had with Chris Sokolowski, who's been a guest here on the podcast about your healthcare business. He's an amazing human. I've known Chris for many years now. And just the notion of the access to all of the clinical trials and all the outcomes and histories and all the great work that will come out of that. The future looks so bright on the positive side. It does indeed. Taking the analogy of the clinical trials and the data, we all know all things HIPAA slash healthcare data, the level of sensitivity on that, on the level of privacy on that. When we use Gen AI in that construct, we are well aware of that. And those controls are built in. And that kind of goes back to the point I made earlier about having ethical AI standards and policies. That is why the reason when you ask me a little behind, yes, we are. But we acknowledge it that we have to build the systems around it as opposed to picking up the outcome of a poorly planned product. I want to flip a question I asked you earlier. I asked you about why partners should choose working with you and Google Cloud. But what is the ideal partner? What is the best partner from your perspective when it comes to technical enablement? What do you look for from those partners? There are three spectrums we look at partners. One is the number one, never going to change, having that customer empathy, customer first attitude. 
we totally get it. Partners are here for a commercial element of the house. We, but we always say customers have to come first, and that needs to come from the partners too. In many ways, partners are an extension of Google. Right? That's how we look at it. So that's one. The second thing which we always look at is purely from once we have the customer equation taken care of. It's not just the technical depth of the partner at one point in time. It has to be a learning organization. At the speed which we are moving in cloud, as the world has seen, we need to have a partner who's equally vested, not in just delivering outstanding and world-class solutions for the customers, but also constantly sharpening the saw on their end. So we need a partner who's constantly innovating with us, constantly pushing on new diverse use cases, new adoptions of technology, and pushing back. And that's the third one. But it's a very tight coupling. It's not just using products from Google. It's also coming back and saying, here is a five things or five features or two products so where we should go and influence the roadmap with you. And that becomes a very synergistic, very symbiotic relationship. Those are partners who truly, if you look at it, are a logical extension of this giant body. It's the new limb going up. That's what we look for partners. And to be very fair and to be very transparent, we have had a great run with partners and we expect this to go on. Pretty much across the board, majority of our partners treat us this way. I always tell every one of them, Google will never have thousands and thousands of employees and partner organizations. We'll always be the hundreds by design. If you look at Jim's point of view, if you look at Adair's point of view, if you look at Thomas' point of view, we are partner first, we are partner-led company and we're going to scale through partners. So the scale for Google will come through partners. It will not come through two, three organizations sitting inside. We'll be part of it, but the tooling, the end scale is going to come through partners. That is where our partner ecosystem is. So I love what you had to say here. You talked about three factors or three characteristics, I would say. You talked about customer empathy, right? Relationship building, understanding the customer, working with the customer. You talked about the learning organization, which I love that, and that the organizations need to, I use the term agility quite a bit. These organizations need to lean in build new practices, or listen for opportunities where they can derive better outcomes, build practices, practice areas, and skills to support their growth with and through you. And then the pushing back piece, which I think is about feedback, like having the candid, maybe aggressive, but in a diplomatic way, conversations with you and your organization about feature sets, about capabilities that they would like to see from the platform, from the organization. Is that right? That is right. And look, we're not perfect. We totally get it. And we are very open to getting that input coming in. The other point which I want to drive on the second aspect from a learning organization, we are a firm believer that if organizations don't move, and this is a fairly stereotypical, right? You regress to the mean very quick, especially at the pace cloud is moving. So the reason we emphasize that partners and even our own engineering teams are constantly pushing is because the customers are the end recipients of this technology where they have to be agile. They have to be able to innovate with a bleeding edge. Otherwise, they will regress to the mean. So it's all tied through, right? So that's how we look at it. Some fantastic conversation. We could go on all day, Clive, here. I think you and I could sit in a room with a cup of coffee and just talk the whole day long about this. And I'd love to do that at some point with you. But for our listeners, we're going to need to pivot. And if you don't mind, as you might know from listening to other episodes, I'm fascinated with the career journey and how people got to this particular spot in their career. And you've had an amazing career. I think you mentioned, I think, 25 years, a long stint at Intel, a fairly significant stint with or period of time with AWS, a competitor of Google, and then your time at Oracle, 
which all seem to lead to this role in many respects. But I'd love for you to share with us, was there a pivot point? Was there an inflection that got you to this spot as a significant leader in your career? If there's one point in my career, and I, I don't speak about this widely, very early in my career, so I'm not a computer science major. My undergrad was in structures, right? And I always tell people I have a learning disability and never do well with tests when there are multiple choice questions. For me, it's got to be conceptual and I can solve that. But I gravitated towards computers when I was very, very young in my academic career. And for one reason or the other, I did make computer science. So for me, the pivot point was working in construction and not giving up my goal to actually make a career in computer science. So I used to be in construction sites, building buildings. In fact, here's a trivia. If you look at Infosys, which is the largest construction of software companies in the world today, there's a place called Electronic City. I was a lead engineer for some of the buildings, and I would actually go help design that building, pump concrete and whatever, right? And then I would go and take computer science classes in the night. I did that for a year and a half, and then I got a full ride to Arizona State on a NASA scholarship. I never looked back. For me, that was my pivot point. And then I went on to do avionics code. I ran a healthcare startup. I've done all things silicon. And then I made my way to the cloud. Was there something, like, was there a spark that, or a mentor that made you make that decision to go from construction? And it's fascinating that we were talking about construction as an analogy here earlier, uh, that you actually were in the construction. Was there something that made you make that leap to Arizona State and to where you ultimately led? I've had many mentors, right? A few come to mind. But if I were to go back, my girlfriend, then my wife now, who's been with me 28 years, right? She was the one who said, look, if you truly believe in it, you got to risk it. And at the age of, I don't know, 22, 23, I'm a first generation immigrant. I have no connections in this country. Now my brother's moved here and all that. But I left everything behind. And I'm a son of a soldier. So for it, for me, it was like, all right, let's risk it. Worst case scenario, we'll be back in two years. And here we are 25 years later. So that for me was the pivot and mentors, and we can have a long conversation on that. I'm a firm believer of that. I've had some amazing managers who ended up becoming a mentors. But yes, that would be my biggest pivot point. Clearly, you made some very good decisions, both listening to your then girlfriend and wife and then marrying her and being partners in your journey, I would say. So really great. That's a really great story, Clive. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I'm fortunate. Thank you. So this is my favorite question, and it's one I love to ask all our guests. You are hosting a dinner party, and you can host this amazing dinner party in anywhere in the world. We can pick a location. But for this dinner party, you can invite any three guests from the present or the past. I've even had a couple people say someone in the future. Whom would you invite, Clive, to this amazing dinner party, and why? Ooh, that's a tough one. Okay. But the first part, I'll solve it for you. The dinner party is going to be in Goa. And those of the listeners, and if you don't know it, Goa is southwest. It's a beautiful, tropical beach place where my heart is. I spend most of my life in India there. It would be in one of the small shack restaurants we have. It's specialized in local cuisine on the sand. So that's where it would be. Three people. I would invite the following three. I've had the fortune of meeting one, assuming they all... Make it and be in this way. The first would be Mother Teresa. I actually met her as a very, very young kid for her altruism without any agenda. I saw her come in and take 
tens of orphan children back in India and Assam when there were floods and they lost their parents and there was no agenda behind that. The second one would be General Patton. If you look at the Battle of the Bulge, he exemplifies for me execution needs strategy for breakfast any day, any time. He was a man of extreme leadership and very few people realize what was at stake at the Battle of Bulge. And he led through it. He took a significant damage, but he took led through it. And the third one, who I wish I could actually meet, I respect him a lot based on everything I read about him, is Mark Cuban. Right? And he's doing things as an entrepreneur. And I like to paraphrase or put him in a bucket where he's using technology for good. If you look at what he's doing with the whole generic medic- medicine industry and trying to actually lower the cost of medication. I actually had a stint in healthcare, and I know the ins and outs of who makes the money. The, do- the doctors don't. They make pennies on the dollar. It's the insurance companies and middlemen. And Mark's done a phenomenal job. At least he started something. So those are three I would invite. It would be in Goa. It would be in a beach shack. It would be, there would be definitely be the local seafood cuisine and the local beverages for sure. Both alcoholic. Ah, it sounds fabulous. Clive, I'm going to have to come to Goa. And first of all, I've never been there. I hear the beaches are beautiful. So I'm going to need, the, I love the locale with the beach shack, local cuisine, right? On the beach. Just sounds fascinating. And your guests, like Ter- Mother Teresa. Wow. We could go on about Mother Teresa. General Patton is, that's a first. General Patton, my father was a soldier in World War II. You didn't know that. I, my father admired General Patton quite a bit. And then Mark Cuban. And I do feel that he is doing great work on generic medicines, generic drugs. And I would love to see our costs lower there because I agree with you. We are all paying too much. 19% of GDP is towards healthcare in this country. And it's, it's an astounding number. And we're not well as a country. So some really great answers there. Thank you. Clive, you have exceeded my expectations as a guest today. I want you to know that. You have been an amazing guest. You are so thoughtful. It is clear that you and your team are doing outstanding work. And for our listeners, is there any guidance you can give them on optimizing for their success working with you and your organization? Before we go to that, Vince, thank you. You've been an amazing host and very thoughtful questions, very provocative questions. I appreciate you thinking of me for this podcast. Now, for our guests, anyone and everyone out there, be it be partners, be it be customers, in the grand scheme of things, we always look at technology when we look at Google. It's not about being first. It's not about trying to come up with something shiny. It's always coming up with a platform which scales, it's distributed, it's highly secure, and will always do good. And that includes not just with technology, doing the right thing with the partners, doing the right thing with our ecosystem and definitely putting the customers right in the center. So when we talk about our technology, our platform, our offering, our ethos, that's what we stand for. That's what we're grounded on. I don't think I need to say anything else. I think you nailed it, Clive. I want to thank you so much. I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for being so thoughtful today. And I hope our listeners listen to this again and again. So thank you for being an amazing guest on this precision partnering series, working with Google Cloud. Thank you so much. Thank you again. So there you have it. Another amazing guest joins Ultimate Guide to Partnering. And I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Odds are, if you're a technology partner executive and hearing my voice, 
chances are you too are looking to accelerate your success through partnerships. I mean, let's face it. We all have seen partnerships that look good on paper, but never live up to their expected results. There are a lot of reasons why partnerships fail. And at Ultimate Partnerships, we help you get it right by applying a proven set of best practices and framework that's used by leading partners working with Microsoft and other technology giants. If you want to learn more, follow the link in the show notes or visit our website at ultimateguidetopartnering.com. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Ultimate Guide to Partnering with your host, Vince Minzione, online at ultimateguidetopartnering.com and facebook.com slash ultimateguidetopartnering. We'll catch you next time on The Ultimate Guide to Partnering.